to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the infrastructure compromise, the fight for voting rights, criminalizing the teaching of U.S. history and elections in New York, uh, surprising results in New York City and upstate uh, New York, and indigenous graves at a Canadian school. Do we know anything about a similar history in the United States? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn, Jackie Goldberg. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The known death toll and the partial collapse of a Florida beachside building has risen to four. Officials say there are still 159 people unaccounted for. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava said rescue officials are still searching for survivors in the 12-story pancake structure in the South Florida city of Surfside. We will continue search and rescue because we still have hope that we will find people alive. That is exactly why we're continuing, and uh, that, that is why we're using our dogs and our sonar and our uh, cameras, everything possible, to seek places where there may still be people uh, to be found. Three bodies were pulled from the rubble overnight. About half the building's roughly 130 units were affected. Officials said no cause for the collapse has yet been determined. President Biden and a bipartisan group of senators have reached an agreement to significantly boost infrastructure spending, though considerable hurdles remain before the blueprint becomes reality. Biden and Democratic congressional leaders Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi insist the bipartisan plan for roads, bridges and the like is just part one of infrastructure spending. They say part two will be a plan for more ambitious projects, which will include climate and social welfare and other family assistance plans that Republicans oppose, that will be passed through the reconciliation process, which doesn't need Republican support. Christopher Martinez reports. President Joe Biden says the infrastructure deal is settled, at least for the moment. I'm pleased to report that a bipartisan group of senators, five Democrats, five Republicans, part of a larger group, has come together and forged an agreement that will uh, create millions of American jobs, and modernize our American infrastructure to compete with the rest of the world and own the 21st century. The agreement is a slimmed-down version of Biden's original two-and-a-quarter-trillion-dollar physical infrastructure proposal. The agreement would spend $1.2 trillion over eight years on roads, bridges, the power grid, broadband internet access, and replacing lead pipes to bring clean water to homes and schools. It would also spend about $15 billion on electric vehicle infrastructure, about half of what Biden had wanted. While the physical infrastructure plan is aimed at getting Republican as well as Democratic votes, the human infrastructure plan will move on a separate track, the budget reconciliation process, which does not need Republican votes. Biden says they're inextricably intertwined. If only one comes to me, I'm not, if, if this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing it. It's in tandem. I'm Christopher Martinez. 
Vice President Kamala Harris travels to the southern border as part of her role leading the Biden administration's response to migration. While in El Paso, Texas, she'll tour a Customs and Border Patrol Processing Center, hold a conversation with advocates from faith-based organizations, as well as shelter and legal service providers, and deliver remarks. Harris has faced months of criticism from both Democrats and Republicans for declining to make a border trip thus far. More from Roz Brown. The ACLU is watching the diplomatic visit after extending a pause on litigation brought over Title 42, which the Trump administration leveraged to restrict migrants from entering the U.S. over public health concerns at the start of the pandemic. Attorney Shaw Drake with the ACLU of Texas says ending that policy, which has pushed back 10,000 migrant families from entering the country, is more important than stopovers. Visits are not what is important. What is important is true policy change in terms of turning back Trump-era abuses. So we need to see changes to real policy that affects real people. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has announced the state plans to spend $250 million to continue building a border wall. I'm Roz Brown. The judge in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin will hand down his sentence today for last year's murder of George Floyd. Chauvin faces decades in prison with several legal experts predicting a sentence of 20 to 25 years. Though Chauvin is widely expected to appeal, he also still faces trial on federal civil rights charges along with three other fired officers who have yet to have their state trials. Chauvin was convicted of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for pressing his knee against Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes as Floyd said he couldn't breathe before he finally went limp. Scorching heat is forecast in the Pacific Northwest this weekend, raising concerns about wildfires and the health of people in a region where many people don't have air conditioning. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat watch. The agency said the lengthy heat wave will cover portions of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Temperatures are expected to reach 114 degrees. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. Before we welcome our guests, we do want to do an honoring of the life of Chief Leonard Crowdog, who was a Lakota spiritual leader and Native American rights campaigner. He passed away on June 5th in Rapid City, South Dakota. He was 78 years old. Um, now, Leonard Crow Dog was part of the 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation. For his role in that occupation, he spent time in prison. Um, those of you who um, know about, a bit about this history know that uh, Native American people and the United States uh, government, there was a, a massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890. Uh, federal troops killed hundreds of unarmed uh, Lakota uh, people there. So in <clears throat> February of 1973, uh, Native American activists returned uh, to that site and held it down uh, for 71 days, and Chief Crow Dog was among them. 
Um, after his release from uh, prison, he returned uh, to his home and it was called Crow Dogs uh, Paradise. And that was in the community of Grass Mountain on the Rosebud Sioux uh, Reservation. And he was actually uh, trained in traditional ways. When he was a boy, his parents actually refused to allow him to go away to the schools where a number of Native American people were sent and their culture uh, stripped from them. And uh, all of his life, he maintained uh, the culture and spiritual practices of his people. His home was a, a site um, for the practice of old ways. Uh, many people from across the country and, and around the world travel there for an annual uh, Sundance. Um, he was a leader in the Native American church uh, as well. And uh, he comes actually from a long line of spiritual uh, leaders among uh, the Lakota. So today we just want to lift him up. He passed away on June 5th and remembering Leonard Crowdog to his family and all who loved him. I especially want to lift up my sister in struggle, Sharon Lungo, who, uh, for whom uh, Leonard Crowdog played a big role um, spiritually and politically in her life, in the life of her young daughter, whom he named. Uh, in the tradition of Sojourner Truth, let us now play the morning song for Leonard Crow Dog, but also let us remember uh, all of the uh, children whose uh, over 700 whose graves were found outside a school that was for Native American uh, children in Canada. So we're going to do our morning song right now uh, from the album uh, Na Afriki. It is sung in Dida, which is a language out of the Ivory Coast in West Africa. <laughs> O colo cao pepe cucolo Ao pepe cucalo Ao pepe cucolo Yang boco Remembrance of Chief Leonard Crow Dog uh, of the Lakota Nation. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And what I'd like to do now is welcome our panelists for our weekly roundtable. Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. 
Thank you very much, Margaret. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly, and she previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn. Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so a lot uh, going on here as the nation is in a, a pivotal uh, point, uh, not only in relation to voting rights, but also in relation to whether we'll see any action on um, the George Floyd um, bill. Uh, having to do with uh, making some changes in law enforcement across the nation. Of course, today, uh, Derek Chauvin, who was found guilty of the murder of George Floyd, he will be sentenced. That bill is stuck um, uh, in Congress, and there really doesn't seem to be much movement forward on that at all. However, um, President uh, Biden, along with a bipartisan group of senators on Thursday, June 24th, reached a deal on the infrastructure bill that President Biden has been trying to get through. Some people are happy about that. Uh, some are not happy. Uh, also, we're going to play a few clips um, around that that sets the stage for our discussion. And uh, after announcing the bipartisan deal, uh, President Biden also later sa said that a second bill, the one that really the rest of what was in his infrastructure bill will move forward as a separate piece and that he wasn't going to sign one without the other. So, of course, Lindsey Graham and um, uh, Mitch McConnell, they're having a meltdown about this and saying that um, President Biden didn't negotiate in good faith, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's go to first hear from uh, President Biden about the infrastructure plan and then a little bit about from Mitch McConnell on the whole situation. I expect that in the, the coming months this summer, before the, count, the, the fiscal year is over, that we will have voted on this bill, as well the infrastructure bill, as well as voted on the budget rec uh, uh, resolution. And that's when they'll, but if only one comes to me, I'm not, if this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing it. It's in tandem. The bipartisan bill from the very beginning was understood there's going to have to be the second part of it. I'm not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. I propose a significant piece of legislation in three parts. And all, all, all three parts are equally important. And by the way, my party, you keep, everybody tell, t tells me what my party is. My party is divided. Well, my party is divided. My party is divided, but my party is also rational. If they can't get every single thing they want, but all that they have in the bill that, that, that before them is good, are they going to vote no? I don't think so. 
Earlier today, a bipartisan group of infrastructure negotiators took the results of their efforts down to President Biden. It was an encouraging sign of progress after leading Democrats had gone out of their way to slow the process. Remember, at the first sign of an agreement last night, and then again this morning, both the Democratic leader and the Speaker of the House made it clear they would hold the bipartisan agreement hostage, demanding trillions of dollars in wasteful spending and job-killing tax increases in return for even considering it. The top two Democrats literally pulled the rug out from under their bipartisan negotiators with these unserious demands before they'd even made it down to the White House. So President Biden's show of support earlier today appeared to be for earning Democrats' support. <clears throat> but alas, that optimism was short-lived. Less than two hours after publicly commending our colleagues and actually endorsing the bipartisan agreement, the president took the extraordinary step of threatening to veto it. It was a tale of two press conferences, endorsed the agreement in one breath and threatened to veto it in the next. Less than two hours. All righty, so there you have it. And uh, a lot happening here. I mean, there is this. Uh, the Democrats are hailing this. Some of the Democrats are hailing this as a success that um, President Biden always wanted a bipartisan approach. Of course, some to the left are upset about uh, about it and clearly it remains to be seen whether any of these two pieces of legislation because now the infrastructure plan in two parts uh, will proceed at all and then of course also happening in tandem is the fact that the GOP refused to even allow um, uh, anything to happen on the voting rights uh, bill that the Democrats and the Biden administration have said are so important. Laura Carlson, let's start with you about some of what is happening on the Hill right now. Uh, two key things here. Well, I think well, it's very clear very from the clear. statements from Mitch, McCann Mitch McConnell that removing all the controversial measures, basically all the what's called human infrastructure, all social spending and climate change into a separate bill to be passed through reconciliation is hugely pro problematic. They essentially sidelined the 1.8 trillion American Families Plan that contains all the social safety net programs and uh, the, the kinds of things that really affect people's lives most directly and that are part of a far more transformative um, agenda that goes up against the inequality that was an election issue. So basically what we're looking at is a bridge-building measure, both literally and figuratively. Of course, it includes, it includes roads, bridges, pipes, transmission lines, broadband, that kind of thing, that undoubtedly has some good and necessary funding in it. I mean, everyone mentions lead pipes as a racial equality issue, which frankly is just sad. It's unbelievable that that hasn't been done before, and that and the, there's really very little that really addresses issues of inequality or transforming um, what we saw as the major, the major faults 
of the economy during the pandemic crisis, which is still ongoing. So this whole measure is built on a very shaky foundation, mainly the premise that the second bill, which is vehemently opposed by Republicans, will arrive on Biden's desk about the same time, and they will both be signed into law. Of course, the reconciliation process is problematic itself. It requires not only that not one single Democrat or independent cross over to the other side, but also that it, it goes through the parliamentarian with these very strict measures about what can be done under reconciliation. The other part of it is, is the, the powers that are coming into play here. I mean, who is this bipartisan group and what pull do they really have? to bring their parties into the agreement. First, you have on the Democrat side, Sinema and Manchin, who are considered traitors by a large part of the Democratic Party because of their position on the filibuster and their refusal to enable important pieces of legislation to go through. Then you have Susan Collins, who sold out women's rights on the Kavanaugh appointment, you have Mitt Romney, who's considered as a moderate, a traitor by hardline Republicans. You know, it's an odd group to be uh, presenting something that's supposed to be this major bipartisan agreement, and it's very questionable whether they have the political capital to get it through. You know, Schumer isn't saying much about this. He said it was a bold measure. Um, but, and then we have criticisms already coming out. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez noted that this bipartisan commission is all white, uh, that the diversity of this bipartisan co coalition, she put, pretty perfectly conveys which communities get centered and which get left behind when leaders prioritize bipartisan deal-making over inclusive lawmaking. And I think that pretty much sums up what's happening here. And, it's, and not only does it face logistical difficulties in becoming legislation, but it has serious gaps in it. Uh, then we have the criticisms from McConnell, who calls uh, the, the alternative bill a laundry list of radical climate demands and the social measures that the Republicans that are, are opposing. Um, Pelosi's coming out in favor, but saying that unless the other bill comes through, and it's clear that it's going to come through, that it will, that this infrastructure bill will be, will be blocked. You know, we've got a lot going on here that will make it very, very difficult, including the finding, the funding and the timing as well. In the voting rights, then, we have this display of absolute intransigence on the part of the Republicans who, not, who didn't vote against it. They refused to even bring it up to a debate. And Raphael Warnock came out and said voting rights are preservative of all other rights. And what could be more hypocritical and cynical than invoking minority rights in the Senate as a pretext for preventing debate about how to preserve minority rights in the society? So that's certainly a, not a sign of good faith in terms of bipartisanship in going forward on these major bills that are coming up, both voting rights, and infrastructure as well. On voting rights, basically, we're left with these states moving forward with these outrageous bills, and that the only avenue open still being court challenges, in which it's true Merrick Garland has said that he's going to take a strong stance 
but it's limited still what can be done with state legislatures making these kinds of changes. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, just to uh, give our listeners a sense of actually what we know of so far of what's in this compromise deal. It's $579 billion in new investments in roads, broadband, internet, electric utilities, and other projects. It's only part of uh, President Biden's initial proposal of $4 trillion. And uh, a, a large sum, 47 billion of it, is set aside for uh, to tackle uh, climate change. But also, you have uh, transportation projects, 312 billion, 65 billion to broadband, 55 billion to waterways. But Jackie Goldberg, also, what's left out um, is the support for caregiving for the aged and disabled people in the U.S. So what he put forward as the caring economy and also for uh, better wages for home care workers. So how do you see all of this uh, playing out right now, given it's controversial out of the gate? And also your thoughts on how the whole voting rights fight is um, coming along, because a lot of this seems to be setting the stage for the midterm elections. Jackie Goldberg. Well, yes, let's first start with first things first. What's not in it? What's not in it is a change in the taxes on high-income earners and corporations, which was going to pay for the larger bill. And uh, that's partly how this bill got uh, identified, because there are business people telling Republican lawmakers their best chance of blocking Democrats from raising tax rates on businesses and high earners is to cut a deal with Biden on infrastructure that raises the revenues another way. So we know what the motivation is for those Republicans who are trying to do this, and that is is that they don't want to be dealing with the taxes. What was left out? $400 billion in home care for older adults and people with disabilities. $213 billion for creating and retrofitting about 2 million housing units. $112 billion for upgrading school infrastructure, which is a big blow to schools who have been trying to deal with the COVID-19 without having air conditioning or good air conditioning or filters or windows. Also, $180 billion for research and development, including $35 billion in climate research. They also took uh, $100 billion out of broadband funding. Uh, pardon me, $100 billion for electrical vehicles was cut. They left some in, but they took $100 billion off, and they also took off $35 billion for broadband funding. That, of course, affects, again, schools and school children because it's the lack of broadband in many low-income neighborhoods and rural communities that has meant that we uh, don't have any way to uh, keep kids online uh, when that's necessary to do. So what we have then is basically a bill which is what the uh, uh, Republicans wanted. They got a Republican bill. Now, what do we think of that? Well, I do think it's not necessarily evil. Well, I think the intentions are evil, but I don't think the results are evil. Because remember that two-thirds of the Republicans who are registered as Republicans still believe that Biden was not elected president. And to have any bipartisan bill that has elect 
elect, uh, uh, Republican vote is at least a step into legitimizing for that two-thirds of the Republicans and the one-third of all Americans who think he was elect, not elected president. I think that's a good step. However, if the reconciliation process doesn't uh, uh, put all of this or most of this back, then, of course, it'll be a very hollow victory because, yes, some jobs will be created, of course, and some things that we've needed to do for probably 50 years, which we see in this collapse of this building in Florida, things have not been built, built well. People in states have cut regulations, and, and, and that's a big part of it. So I think there's a lot to do here, but I do agree uh, with some of the, the progressive caucus in the House saying that they're not disappointed by this. They see this as part one and that part two will be the rest of the bill and that they will do that through reconciliation and they'll get quite a bit done. Uh, if that comes to be true, I think it will have been a wonderful uh, thing. If, in fact, the bill um, doesn't do that, if, in fact, what uh, the bipartisan bill uh, does is create uh, chaos with inside the Democratic Party on how they agree on what will go into the reconciliation bill, then, of course, uh, their evil intentions will have been realized. Right. So it's a Jackie Goldberg is a bit of a risky strategy there that the, the Democrats are are doing. And we know that Biden is big on bipartisanship and wanted to produce something to have done something by the time of the, the midterms. But uh, some people are saying, well, it's possible that this kind of strategy would mean neither peace will get through either the compromise with the GOP or the Democrats, uh, the rest of what Democrats want through reconciliation. Well, a any quick thought that on that? I think a lot of that depends on the leadership in the Progressive Caucus. And what I heard uh, some of them say on television last night was is that they are not unhappy with this, that they see this as step one, and step two is the reconciliation for the rest of the pro programs needed in human infrastructure. So they're so far seeing this as an opportunity uh, that remains to be seen as they work behind the scenes. I mean, that's the, the, a lot of this we will never know how the outcomes are until the bills emerge, start emerging from markups from committees. That's when you know what actually is going to happen, and we don't know that yet. We don't even know yet how they're going to mark up what they've so-called agreed upon, because that, you know, markups make a big difference in committees in the legislative bodies, and markup simply means how the bill gets actually written what's in it, what's not in it, and what you can do with it and what you can't do with it. So when those markups come, we'll know a lot more. I do think that they want to do this <coughs> uh, in July, uh, which I think is probably a good idea. Uh, they, I, I think they want to actually do it uh, uh, as soon as possible, and I think that's a very good idea. I do think even the $1 trillion deal is a step forward for the Biden administration's promise to re do, re uh, do infrastructure. It is not a complete end, end to that, and it is done with complete, uh, I, I keep saying over and over again, the intentions are evil. The intentions are to protect businesses from, and uh, wealthy people and corporations from having their taxes raised. That's the intention of this bill. It is not an infrastructure bill. It's a save the rich bill. Uh, and, but having said that, the, if the Democrats can, within themselves, come up with the appropriate infrastructure bill for human infrastructure, 
this could turn to take lemons into lemonade. We don't know what will happen yet. But I do think it's important to say that there is already some part of this that is helpful to Biden because some part of this shows some Republicans willing to work with the president of the United States and that means that some credibility gets attached to the president's being the president instead of not being the real president. In terms right. of the uh, fight over <coughs> uh, voting rights, it is the fight of our lifetime. Um, I do not believe uh, that we're going to make much headway, but I like the idea that Biden and a lot of his administration are going to go out to the towns and cities of America where the bill to make uh, uh, voting easier and, 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 uh, and, and, and well done and protected uh, is, has about a 78% support throughout the country. I think Biden is smart by saying the bully pulpit, it's time to use that and go make this a fight. This fight will go on until it is won. Uh, but I, the question is, how long will that take? I don't believe anybody that I uh, understand, who understands politics and democracy in America, will stop on this fight until it is majorly won. And that's a good news, because it'd be different if everybody were saying, oh, gee, God, we lost. Well, too bad. But that is not the impression I'm getting. And also, this tour that they plan to take is a big part of letting Americans know what the people in Washington, D.C. are saying and doing is not in connected, not connected at all to what polls say the people, the vast majority of people in America want. And that includes the majority of re people registered as Republicans. They want a voting rights bill. They want a voting rights bill, not by the same margin as Democrats. Democrats want it by about 90 percent. But about 67 percent of Republicans, that's two-thirds, say that that bill, all of it, is what they want. If the president can go out and stir that up, if we can have, uh, you know, when the folks go home for their summer break from Congress and they have to face town hall meetings like they did over Obamacare, that will move this uh, along. Whether we'll get it this year, I don't think so. But I do think that it does mean that there will be some additional issues on the uh, elections in 2022 uh, 20, uh, about the fact that there are two very popular things, the infrastructure bill, including the human infrastructure bill, and the uh, <clears throat> voting rights bill, both of which have very widespread support in the country and even have a majority of Republican uh, registered voters. So I think there's hope for this in the long run. Short run, we're not going to get much. Right, and, and uh, Dr. Jarl Horn, bringing you into this discussion here, you have uh, Vermont S uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, is the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. He has said that he and Biden are looking at the, quote, reality for working families. As he argues, the Senate has become bogged down in numbers during the debate about the infrastructure uh, plan. So we'll see. Uh, on, on the voting rights front, on Tuesday, June 22nd, the Republicans blocked 
even the opening uh, debate on the For the People Act, the key voting rights bill put forward by Democrats, but there's a lot of pushback on Wednesday, June 23rd, Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Dr. Bishop uh, William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign were among more than 20 people doing civil disobedience who were arrested, staging a protest outside the U.S. Uh, Capitol. And also, um, they also had targeted Senator uh, Joe uh, Manchin and Mitch McConnell. And meanwhile, there's a nationwide Freedom March cross-country bus caravan that involves some of the uh, unions, Unite H-E-R-E, the Culinary uh, and Hotel Workers Union, the Black Voters Matter, uh, and more. So a lot of pushback happening here. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all of this as everybody seems to be gearing up for the midterm elections. Well, first of all, with regard to infrastructure, I think that you need to watch the stock price of Caterpillar, the Earth Moving Machinery Corporation. And if their stock price goes up, there's a good chance that a large infrastructure package will ultimately triumph. I think it's also remarkable that in talking about this bill, this infrastructure bill, Mr. Biden once again put it in the context of this new Cold War, that is to say whether or not it will allow the United States to compete with the People's Republic of China. With regard to voting rights, I think it's apparent that the Republicans have resolved that they will not lose another election. And I think it's long past time for people on the left to recognize the bitter reality which is that the secret sauce of the Republican Party is that the base oftentimes directs the leaders, not vice versa. It's not as if Mitch McConnell is leading the base around by the nose. You saw that with regard to the January 6th insurrection, where you had Republican leaders initially were critical, but after there was a revolt in the base, they either kept quiet or became obstructionist in terms of having a commission of inquiry into that troubling matter. Uh, I salute those such as Reverend Barber, Reverend Jackson, and the others who are going on this freedom caravan, and I hope that they take time to come to Texas, which again is in the vanguard in terms of turning back voting rights, a bill that will probably be passed within the next few weeks if press accounts are accurate, would allow judges with the preponderance of the evidence to overturn electoral results on the basis of so-called fraud. Now, Texas, of course, has the largest black population in the United States, 3.9 million, has one of the largest Mexican-American populations, and therefore is well on the way to a kind of apartheid. And we need to realize this is not just the U.S. trend, it's a global trend. You saw what happened in the French elections with the right wing doing quite well. We see what's happening in Sweden with the so-called Democrats uh, helping to uh, lead to an upcoming snap election because of their obstructionist tactics. And also, I think that you can see a manifestation of this trend in Africa, where religious zealots and fanatics are on the march in northern Nigeria, northern Mozambique, the Sahel. Obviously, in Africa in particular, and to an extent worldwide, this is a reaction to the previous epic, where you had left-wing forces who were pushing for redistribution of the wealth, and the United States, oftentimes backed, I'm afraid to say, by some of the left, reacted against that trend, creating this vacuum, and now the ultra-right is on the march, and I'm not sure uh, how this will eventuate. I know you want to talk about 
uh, New York and the election in Buffalo, where That's right. a socialist black woman, India Walton, was elected mayor, the first socialist mayor elected in a major U.S. city in about 60 years. Once again, I salute the Democratic Socialists of America and the local New York State Party, the Working Family Party, with regard to helping turn out the troops on her behalf and on their behalf. Well, that was quite a, a shock to a lot of people, uh, given who is leading in the race in New York City for mayor. Any, any thoughts on that, a black ex-cop? Dr. Well, Gerald Horn? It's a very, well, apparently Eric Adams will prevail in the New York City mayoral contest, although it's not a slam dunk as of yet. He, he put together a very curious coalition of hedge fund billionaires like Steve Cohen, the controlling shareholder of the New York Mets uh, baseball team. The Rupert Murdoch newspaper, the New York Post, endorsed him. He had a substantial number of black and brown working class voters uh, who supported him. I think part of the problem was that those who were contesting him did not have that much electoral experience, and that includes Maya Wiley, a former counsel to outgoing Mayor de Blasio, who was endorsed by many on the left, not to mention uh, Kathleen Garcia, who got a lot of votes in Manhattan, but does not have an electoral record. At least uh, Eric Adams had been a Brooklyn Borough president. And, of course, I think that the New York City left really needs to engage in a kind of self-criticism because they have yet to engage the Staten Island question. How is it that the working-class borough of Staten Island, with a disproportionate number of Euro-American middle-class and working-class voters, continues to be a bulwark for the right? Until they unravel that question, it seems to me we'll always be in trouble with regard to New York City elections. Right. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. We are going to take a short station break now. And when we return, well, we're going to get into it. I mean, critical race theory, it's all over um, right wing um, television and uh, talk radio. What's going on? Uh, what is the plan? So our panelists are going to be weighing in on all of this. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We shall not shall not be moved we shall not we shall not be moved like a tree that's planted by the water we shall not be moved union is behind us we shall not be Behind us, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. Just a beautiful rendition. That's Mavis Staples. We shall not be moved. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at so True Radio. We're also on SoundCloud uh, 24-7 nationwide and worldwide. And in our tradition, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and on the international front. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Hungary. 
This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, uh, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. So now, criminalizing, teaching U.S. history, all of this stuff about critical race theory, um, if you happen to watch Fox News, you can't miss practically every hour somebody is going on about attacking uh, what they're calling critical race theory across the United States, crackdowns increasing on the teaching of black and brown history in schools. Actually, let's go to a couple of uh, short clips about this and what some of the people opposing are also saying. About 100 parents, students, and teachers attended the Germantown Board of Education meeting Monday arguing both sides of critical race theory. How do we expect children to behave kindly towards one another when this is what we teach them? How are our youngest learners supposed to love and accept one another when they are told that they are inherently bad or inherently a victim because of the color of their skin? I urge you as a board to listen to those kids who are telling you that they feel marginalized here in Germantown. It's time that we start putting equity work on the forefront because you are ages behind other districts. Critical race theory is the idea that racism is not just a product of personal prejudice, but is embedded into society through the legal system and public policy. In general, we just feel that the critical theories are a lens for students to look at a different perspective. That is how it's being taught in Germantown in the few courses that it's being taught in. So it's not the idea of criticizing anybody or bringing any group down. It really is to look at something through a different lens. Though critics say critical race theory pits people of color against white people. In my personal opinion, it is a Marxist and communist theory. Can you kind of describe to me the parts of critical race theory that you, you believe are racist and Marxist? If you actually research critical race theory, it's based in Marxism, and it's defined as it's based in Marxism. It's defined that it's based in communism. Oh, my goodness. Uh, in reality, critical race theory is a progressive theoretical framework, we're told, by which structural and institutional racism can be imagined. And in fact, it developed as an academic movement of black and brown civil rights scholars and activists in the United States who aim to critically examine U.S. law as it intersects with issues of race in the U.S. and to challenge mainstream liberal approaches to racial justice. Uh, Justice, but we all know, a lot of us listening know what this is absolutely a cover uh, for, all this talk about critical uh, race theory. And Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you because I wanted, we, we don't have time now, but I wanted to play a clip about those 751 unmarked graves of indigenous children that were found in Canada at uh, outside one of these boarding schools, 751 of them, right? And one has to wonder if they're similar uh, graves uh, dotted across the United States. But when you look at what has happened to indigenous people, when you look at what has happened to black people, heck, when you look at what has happened to poor white people in this country, um, we, we, uh, how can Juneteenth be taught uh, the significance of it? What happened to indigenous people be taught without seriously um, looking at the history of the United States from this lens. Laura Carlson, your thoughts on, on this, uh, a growing and widespread attack, including on college campuses. Laura. Yeah, I totally agree that these issues are linked because they have to do with just 
teaching history, as you say, just looking at history. Critical race theory is a framework. It's, uh, they act as if it's something that's written in stone, you know, a single statement uh, that white people have to feel bad for their privilege, basically, is what they're saying. So it's a, it's a direct racist pushback to some of the advances that movements have made, not just in terms of political wins, but conceptually throughout the country, the higher degree of awareness of the role of systematic and systemic racism in U.S. culture, which implies also rereading history or retrieving history from the whitewashing and the censorship that it has that that it's that it's been subject to over the years. And now we have this movement that is openly calling for that whitewashing and censorship in direct pushback to that. Uh, there's now laws in 24 states that prohibit it. I have to say that from outside, it's almost unfathomable how these laws uh, de- describe the prohibition to teach something that's clearly a basic fact of U.S. history. Fortunately, there are also teachers rebelling. But we also know that this isn't, we've seen this before, you know. I mean, the evolution trials was a moment in history that was quite comparable. And then particularly more recently and still going on is the whole attack on gender ideology. They choose a catchphrase. They attack it because they rightfully um, actually see that there is uh, a movement for equality that could uh, that could actually, you know, in some ways decrease unjust privileges uh, within and inequalities within a society. There's fundamentalist forces behind this, evangelical forces behind this, and so the, the, the history of how gender ideology became a source of pushback is important, too. Now, we have these these laws, what they say in Texas, for example, that in public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, they can't talk in class about the concepts that an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of the individual's race. But they, you know, but people do, on the other hand, always receive discrimination based on race, and they're not allowed to talk about that either. So this denial of reality and this suppression. And with the indigenous graves, again, it's going back to the importance of looking at the history and understanding the structural degree of racism within the society. And, of course, uh, there's a very strong possibility, sadly, that graves will be discovered within these boarding schools in the United States as well. Fortunately, we have a Secretary of the Interior, an indigenous woman, who understands how important it is to go back to this history, to acknowledge it in order to move forward, and she's made a commitment to go into the records of the federal schools and to investigate what happened in 150 years, from 1819 to 1969, in the Civilization Fund Act, in which um, indigenous people, indigenous children were forced to learn the habits and arts of civilization being stripped from their families. So I think there's a, a possibility that graves will be found. It's another part of the history that has to be reckoned with, and they'll probably be pushed back to that as well. I'm sure there will be 
from the right. And we have to recall also that it's not just finding the remains of children as tragic that, as that is, but beginning to go back into those stories. Because while many died, the damage and the trauma of that experience um, is, is also a part of the legacy that's almost equally damaging. Right, and uh, thank you, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, you're an educator. Um, is any of this uh, bubbling up uh, anywhere in, in, in your quarters or, or your thoughts on, on all of this? I mean, criminalizing teachers, you know, signing bills in, in, in Texas and in Tennessee, Iowa, Idaho, Oklahoma, Florida. <laughs> And some about, and I even saw one where they talked about teachers having to pay a fine. Dare yeah, they yeah, teach yeah. this? You know, <laughs> Jackie all of this is about what started really in the early 60s by Mel and Norma Gabler in Texas. They began the attempt to say that, that the way U.S. history is being taught is wrong, and their efforts in Texas led to the beginning of what is known as the northern version of American history and the southern version in American history. Textbook companies create two American history series, one for the south and one for the north. And the one in the south leaves out things like, calls the Civil War, doesn't call it the Civil War, calls it the war between the states. Says Reconstruction ending was a wonderful thing and on and on and on. So this is not news. This is not new. But it is the notion that people are trying to say that you should not tell children that there is systemic racism. You have to tell them it's just a few bad apples and we can get rid of that by teaching them not to be racist. You have to tell people that American history was basically a forward march towards more and more freedom for more and more people. But you're not to tell them why you had to have that march in the first place. And on and on and on. So what you're really seeing is, is that the same people, those same legislators that do not believe that Biden is president, do not believe that the United States has systemic racism. Baloney on both, right? So what they're going to see is a lot more of this stuff because these uh, gerrymandered vast majorities of Republican legislators and states means that they can pass all of these laws, but they are not new laws. They have been trying to prevent the United States children from learning its own history for more than 150 years. This is not a new attack. However, what is happening is, is that you have Fox News sending out a digital uh, a guidebook on how to fight this. And that's why you're seeing it happening all over the country. Now, here's the interesting thing. This huge amount of money that the federal and state governments, well, in California, the state government, too, but at least the federal government for everybody has sent out on pandemic recovery requires us to pay attention to the needs of low-income children and children of color. And I think that's a big part of what this is being thought about, because part of doing that means taking a look at the structural racism in public education. And remember, public education was largely developed as a white institution to
to get white farm worker kids off the farms and into factories. You can tell that because, for example, of all the things that we record in public schools, we record tardies. Really? Tardies? Why would that be important? Well, because the farm kids grew up with farm time being sunrise and sunset, but factories start at 9.01 or 8.57 or whatever. And so they had to train children to be good factory workers. The result was a wonderful system if you were from white families because the system was based on the values and the attitudes and the sensitivities of white families as people who were constructing school districts understood them. Yeah. What that means is, is that institutionally, the system leaves out sensitivity to people of color, leaves out how mathematics is taught. Take a look at uh, Kendall Brown's famous work about uh, African-American male students and mathematics. There has been a lot of research which shows that whether it was intentional or not, or whether it was just there weren't a lot of kids of color in schools when we were, quote, inventing the American public school system, it doesn't matter how it started. The system is based on a culture that a large number of students do not share with white America. That doesn't mean that you stop teaching white kids. It doesn't mean that you tell white kids that they are responsible for racism. But you teach all kids that the system that they've inherited as students right now has systemic racism in it, throughout it, whether it was intentional or not is truly unimportant, but it has to be gotten rid of. And that is exactly what is being resisted by Fox News, because they like the system that favors white children. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.